0: Hey, Chef D here. Got to tell you about Rosa Grande pepperoni for your pizzas. These little beauties feature a cool cup and char look and a premium taste. They'll bring your customers back like they were boomerangs. Check them out at HormelCupAndChar.com. Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor, and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. This morning, it's my pleasure to welcome Chris Locke executive chef of Marvin Restaurant and the Cloak Bar. Chris was born in England and he has owned his culinary skills and knowledge internationally through the UK, Australia, France and Central America. Chris makes his home in Toronto. He has a passion for using locally sourced ingredients, showcasing the best of Ontario's bounty, bringing honest and challenging dishes to the table. There is a heavy emphasis on seasonality in his cooking, and he uses fermentation and preservation where possible to lengthen the seasons and transform their flavors. Chris is currently the executive chef of Marvin Restaurant and the Cloak Bar, where he has been for the past four years. He was a proponent of guiding the restaurant to a no tipping model, increasing benefits and working conditions for employees, and promoting a professional workplace. Good morning, Chris, and welcome to Good David. morning.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me on.
0: Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for making time in your busy schedule. I, I know how busy chefs are, especially during the summer. So thanks for making the time. Um, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you um, today about your restaurant, your cooking philosophy, and also about some of the aspects of your kitchen that you've been able to change through the pandemic. So... Um, So how's it going? I mean, this is now the end of July and uh, I don't want to say we're out of the pandemic because we're still in it, but I know things are are a little better, but how are you doing?
1: Uh, I'm doing well, um, and the restaurant is doing well. Um, We're still here, which is, I think there were some points during the pandemic where that would have been surprising had I heard it then. Um, It's been a very tough uh, two and a half years. Um, but we're here and like you said, like the pandemic for a lot of people is over. Um, I think for restaurants, it's still lingering on and the supply chain issues and, uh, the inflation and cost of, cost of living, uh, for our staff and cost of living for, um, sorry, the cost of goods, um, or the cost of products. And it's still, still a pretty, it's still a pretty wild time.
0: For sure. So, I, I mean, we'll get into the pandemic a little bit more because it's it's hard not to have, you know, to have a conversation and not touch on it because it has affected this industry so significantly. Um, but to start, I guess I, I'd love to know more about you and, and where you got your start. I know you, you were born in England. Um, is that where you received most of your training? And did you go the culinary school route? Or were you more self-taught, um, maybe we can start with that.
1: Yeah, so I think my my route to kitchens was non-traditional, I guess. Um, so I actually, I started working as a server at a, at a hotel when I was 16 as a side job. While I was at school, um, I was terrible and only lasted <laughs> about three months um, until something opened up in the kitchen. There was a, a kind of a, a, an intern, um that had just finished their their placement and they were looking for someone else to be in there so i kind of put my hand up and was like i I can cook i thought i could cook or at least i could make beans on toast at home um (laughs) and it really just started from there and uh that was when i was 16 so i got into the kitchen at a young age um, and started being exposed to all these wonderful ingredients and pieces of uh these, these tools used for cooking and these beautiful plates of food and sauces and, um, really just like blew my mind like this whole other world that is kind of kept away from, from most people. Um, and I loved it. So I continued to cook there. Um, and I was actually there for five years, kind of part-time while I was studying. It was always, it, it was nice that I had a part-time job that I enjoyed. Whereas a lot of my friends, Um, at the time like working in Foot Locker or working (laughs) in in retail and and didn't necessarily enjoy what they were doing. So it was nice. I could go, I could earn some money on the side and I could actually enjoy what I was doing and felt like I was like gaining skills. Um, And actually went to university. I studied um, sport business. I did an undergraduate and then did a master's in international business and management. All the time I was working in... That same kitchen, um, again, a nice little money earner while I was at university, um, and I enjoyed it. And but I always, I always thought that my career and like my long-term adult career would be in uh, in like the business management world. Um, and I did a year after my masters. I worked for a year out of the kitchen um, in Manchester, and not that I necessarily disliked what I was doing, but I wished that I was in the kitchen most days. Um, wow. sitting in the office, I wish that I was on my feet. I wish that I was doing a 12 hour day. I wish that I was in a you know in front of a screaming hot range, um, which is quite unusual, but that was kind of the the sign that I, I should be back in the kitchen.
0: So that is very non-traditional because you got into it almost accidentally, it sounds like, with that opening that came up in the kitchen. Um, it's not that you had a love of food that you always had growing up or, or you, you, you wanted to explore. It, it almost feels like it was just accidental, but then it opened up a whole new world for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I had a love of food and I think that's, that's where I, that's why I wanted to Explore the kitchen. Um, I think I just enjoy, I I still do enjoy eating food. Um, And when I figured out when I was at an age when I realized that I could actually make it myself, it was like a huge realization um, that food, you didn't have to wait for it to come. You could um, make it yourself and make things taste good. Um, And the philosophy of like where food comes from was kind of instilled into me in, in a young age one of my uh friends that i mean we've been friends for probably 25 years now um but he grew up on a dairy farm so he's in very close contact with um with that environment and my dad also grew a lot of the a lot of the vegetables that we ate uh in the house growing up were grown by my dad uh in the back garden so there's like there was always a connection to food. Like it was never, it was never, it never felt very far removed from, um, from me at any point.
0: Sure. So having gone to school for a regular, um, for regular degree, as opposed to culinary school, do you feel like you missed out on having that culinary school training? Because it sounds like what you've learned, you've really learned through the job or on the job. Um, did you ever feel like that was, uh, a weakness for you at all? Or did you not see it that way?
1: Um, I think that there have been times during my career when I've felt lacking in knowledge, um, but because of the age that we're in, and like since uh, since what when I started, when I realized that I wanted to be in kitchens full-time and I wanted this to be my career, um, the resource of the the, the great resource of the internet was available to everybody. Um, so essentially, if you don't know something, there's tools there that you can very easily find out uh, from professionals. There's usually yeah. free tutorials from um, from professors or so like people who teach courses um, or even just from chefs who aren't like um, they're not instructors, they they don't teach, but they have this knowledge and they, they want to impart it. So, um, yeah, it was obviously took me longer, I think, to to learn those skills rather than like an intensive course mm-hmm. at, at a college. But a lot of the information is available and it's just a matter of having the opportunity to practice and um, to explore. Yeah, I think as well, like. Going to culinary school or any kind of like. Book learning, um, any kind of like formal education, can actually, mm-hmm. in some way, stifle creativity. When you you taught so the the way that culinary schools teach as well is often very rigid in uh, you know French, Italian, European centric cuisine,
0: um, mm-hmm.
1: which should only apply to a small range of cuisines, but it doesn't, um, especially in in like North American kitchens. Um, and if you learn that way, then you kind of that method of cooking is instilled into you, you know. And and trying to think outside of the box suddenly becomes a lot more difficult. But if you don't wow. have that, then uh, you're free to explore and um, do weird and wonderful things and see if they work.
0: So it's a lot more fluid, is what you're saying,
1: really? Yeah, yeah, you. I would say so.
0: Okay, so. so- your food philosophy with all of those, um, uh, guides for you that you've had, whether it was the internet or just allowing your own creativity to come through, how has that influenced your cooking philosophy and style? How would you define that?
1: Uh, I think my food philosophy, I think at, at Marvin, especially when I, when I joined Marvin, is five years ago in 2017. Um, I was previously working at a Sorry, just gonna give a little backstory and then we'll get onto the food yeah. philosophy. Um so I was working at a Mexican restaurant, which was I learned so much about Mexican food, about Mexican culture, cuisine, um, but all of the ingredients were imported. So there was very little that was grown here. Um, there's very little emphasis on or zero emphasis on where ingredients came from, um, the process in which it took for them to arrive here, uh, how it impacted the land, the ocean, the people. And then I arrived at Marban, and it kind of felt like everything clicked. Um, For so long, I had just been in this system where food arrived, and um, there wasn't really any thought given to the process of it getting to the restaurant. It was all about what happens once it's in the restaurant, then we have control, then we can make food taste good um and look good uh but then just having the freedom to be able to start looking at where our food comes from to right care more passionately about uh how this impacts the land how does growing this vegetable impact land like who is actually in the field who's picking um these vegetables you know how does it impact uh a, a number of different stakeholders and then when it arrives at the restaurant, we've already done our, our due diligence. We've already gone through that process so that when it arrives at the restaurant, we have something that we fully know where it's come from. Um, we know that it tastes good because of how it's treated. We know the impact on the communities where it's uh, fished or caught or raised. Um, and then we can stand behind it. And before we've even touched touched whatever it is and started cooking, uh, we can stand behind it and say, yes, we believe that this is something that people should eat. This is something we're proud of serving, um, even in its raw form before we've even touched it. So I think in terms of a food philosophy, um, I think starting with good ingredients is paramount. I think whatever you're doing, whatever level of cooking you're doing, um, knowing where ingredients are from, and knowing what is good and what isn't and what's what's a product that's greenwashed and marked up four times the amount, but doesn't really have any of the things that it's, it says that it does. Um I think having that knowledge of ingredients is is really important.
0: So you're very ingredient focused and 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 also um I would assume the local is very important to you in terms of keeping products as local as possible even with our short growing seasons and and what have you um how does that translate to the types of food that you're highlighting on the menu um
1: so we we've kind of gone through uh just in my tenure but i mean marvin over the last 15 years has gone through different phases um there was one one point they were doing uh spanish tapas so it's it's gone through a lot of different phases and when i came on board it was that there was this focus or this um this need to kind of like celebrate the british heritage that marvin has just because uh marvin is an amalgamation of mary and ben who were the Mm. parents of the owner and they had their family house in england where the owner was born was called Marbon and it was an, an amalgamation of those two names. So it was important that, that there should be like some resonance of the, the British roots in the food and in the, the hospitality in the, um, in the brand. But I think we've slowly moved away from that as we realize that we don't have the same growing season as the UK um, and a lot of the the way that ingredients are celebrated throughout the year uh in England and the UK is uh different to how we cook here and how we grow here so with the discovery of our discovery of fermentation um probably three years ago um when we started going deeper and deeper into the ways that we can change flavors and the way that we can create these flavors that are like absolutely unique to us because of the uh, many different variables that go into fermentation. Um, it means that we have essentially like created... It's not a style of cuisine, but we've like created flavors and we've, um, we create dishes that don't really pertain to a cultural region, like a geographical region of the world. Um, like we make misos, which are very Japanese in their origin but the way that we make miso is very local to the land. And it's like a, an expression of terroir and that we don't use white rice when we ferment as would usually be done in Japan. Um, we use wild rice because it's from here, um, it. but yeah. you, you, you end up with a similar result um, but really expressing the, the flavors of what we have here and what's grown locally.
0: That makes sense. Um, I mean, your approach sounds very holistic. Um, you're not looking at food separately from everything else. It's part of you know where it's grown and who's growing it. So it's a very holistic approach. Um, how does that how does that meet uh, with consumers? You know, like how are they finding that, and how do they respond to, to what you're creating at the restaurant?
1: Um, most people are receptive, and I think it's it's definitely the like you said, it's a holistic approach in that it takes everybody. To be a part of this uh, this process, and when a guest comes into the restaurant, or like how they perceive the menu, and how they're greeted, how the the server or the bartender or anybody in the organization like has an interaction with someone who's just walking into the restaurant for the first time and explains what we're doing, um, why it's important. A lot of people get it. Um, there are some people who just don't really care because uh, uh, they might be busy, they might not really have researched what we're doing, and they just want something to eat, and that's as simple right. as it is. Um, and there also are also some people who dislike what we're doing because it's different. And um, having miso on a menu automatically to some people will trigger that it's Japanese food, Japanese. Uh, which we've so someone has accused us of being before uh, and it definitely isn't It's in no way Japanese food apart from uh, taking um, inspiration from Japanese fermentation processes. So yeah. yeah, I think if you if we're trying to please everyone then we please nobody. so we sure. make things approachable for the most part and challenging for a small part. Because we want to, we want to challenge people and what their pre, preconceived notions are of food or like local food, um, and that we can make something that tastes not local at all. Like it wouldn't be like a Canadian flavour, uh, but used made using all local ingredients.
0: So with um, with vegetarian cuisine becoming more popular, or plant based, you know, more plant forward menus would you say that's part of your focus as well or have you kind of sidestepped that whole area
1: i love this question um just because when we're talking about uh plant-based uh okay we go into like a a whole realm of like plant-based and uh meat substitutes which i'm pretty against Mm -hmm. um just in their philosophy. So I think we, a, a lot of the things that, that like the vegan movement cares about, um, are things that we care about that we're not exclusively, we don't have like blinders on and we're like, if it's not a vegetable, then it's not okay. Um, mm-hmm. we're looking at how, whatever ingredients we, we choose to source at the restaurant is going to be for a good reason. So, uh, for example, we just changed all of our beef to one hundred percent grass-fed, grass-finished beef from one single farm. Um, the farm is certified organic, and we did that because, I mean, it's like it's a difficult. I think it's a difficult like value proposition when you present it to guests sometimes, um, but just the ethos of that and the, the implications for the environment. Mm -hmm. Beef generally has or definitely has the highest carbon footprint of any protein uh, that we consume. But that's generally because of how um, beef is raised as, as a commodity. So it's intensively raised. It's fed lots of grain and corn, which has to be grown. Usually GMO requires a lot of water and has like that. Even just the growing of those grains causes a lot of impact to the environment. And excess nitrogen runoff, there's pesticides that run off into streams and water supplies, and affect what we drink, what we consume, um, causes algae blooms in the in the Gulf of Mexico, and affects plant life there. So it's like there's there's so many issues with with mass-produced proteins. Um, right. So what we're doing instead, uh, we still want to be able to serve beef. We believe that farming in the right way is good for the environment. Um, and there's studies that show that grass-fed beef can actually be carbon negative, because of the way that the uh, grasslands are uh, huge carbon sinks. So they will mm-hmm. absorb, like, uh, absorb carbon and fix carbon in the soil. So as the grass grows, the cows eat the grass, and then the the animals rotate, and the grass grows again, capturing more carbon. So you can actually offset the the carbon impact of beef farming. Um, which is Makes something sense. that's super important. And I think that philosophy is as important as like veganism and not eating meat. I think knowing which things to eat is uh, is more important. Um, like I, I think it's possible to, to have a vegan diet and still be causing a lot of damage to the environment by um, eating vegetables that come from monocrop farms, that same process of growing animal feed where you Mm -hmm. have uh, GMO crops and a lot of damage to the soil and the waters, um, which then feeds into all of the aquatic life. I think that can be, you you can go that route by having a vegan diet. So I think before we we look at segmenting uh, dietary choices and dietary preferences into these boxes of this is okay and this isn't, uh, we need to take a step back and look at like, what is okay? Like, what what is causing that? Da- like, what, what is the goal of this diet that you're choosing? Um, and how can you best achieve that? Not just by lumping whole groups of uh, things that we eat into, into big catch-all boxes.
0: So it sounds like it's a much more balanced and educated approach, as opposed to just jumping on a trend for the sake of its popularity, is to dig deep and really see... How effective that trend is and, and how it relates to your own specific restaurant
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have like we, we have changed our philosophy in that we um, do have a lot more vegan options, uh, especially in the summer when plants are more abundant um, and vegetables are more abundant and we we definitely have more um, options for that um, but we have a, a vegan burger on the menu. Um, mm-hmm. And instead of doing what 95% of restaurants are doing and buying impossible meat or Beyond Burger, um, we take uh, Ontario quinoa and we ferment it uh, using the same culture as tempeh. So, wow. to make tempeh, you'll use a culture um, that kind of binds the proteins together. So, it'll make it kind of stick and have like resemble um, that, like meat meatish that's texture, um, right. which we want to, you, you want to have some kind of like substance in the middle of your, in the middle of two pieces of bread. And that's uh, sure. what kind of like makes that mouthfeel of eating a burger. Um, so we use Ontario grains, we ferment them in house. And that is the basis of uh, our tempeh vegan burger. So we're not relying on someone else to dictate what is a a good product and using uh, quotation marks here, air quotations. Um, So a lot of the the plant-based meat substitutes still use monocrop farms. They still, they kind of rely on um, a protein source for the the fake meat, which is generally from um, large monocrop farms that have the same issues as farming those grains for animal consumption.
0: Yeah, and that's just it. When you really dig deep within some of those products, they're not as healthy as they pretend to be. Mm-hmm. When you really look at the ingredients carefully, and a lot of people don't do that. So, so I understand exactly what your process, uh, you know, why you're doing that, which is wonderful. Um, Chris, obviously, we, we talked a little bit about the pandemic earlier, but the pandemic has really changed the whole restaurant industry from top to bottom. And, and obviously a lot of restaurants had to pivot during the, the first year and a half of, of the pandemic primarily. Um, what did the pandemic do to Marvin and, and, and how did you basically cope with it and, and deal with it? And what? how did you have to change to still be able to be here today, two years after the pandemic?
1: Um, yeah, I think, I think when we so the restaurant itself, obviously, we had to to do a lot of things to to survive, and that's essentially what it was for two years. It was constant survival, and it was creativity for survival. Um, and I think a, a lot of the the media, like applauding restaurants for being so creative, was it looked it looked nice, but actually, it was like and very, very demanding, very stressful. Um, and I think took like a psychological, it shaved a few years off um, anyone who like rolled through that those two years. Um, actually, it's a friend of mine um, that is the owner of Dispatch restaurant in St. Catharines. He made a, an Instagram post a couple of days ago, um, just really expressing how on the edge small businesses are um, and also like small business owners and chefs and managers and mm-hmm. um, and got a, got a lot of traction but just that kind of like honest approach I think it's always hard to to talk about like mental health issues I think it's becoming a little bit easier but there's still a stigma around it um, mm-hmm. and I think just like the, the psychological toll that the last two and a half years have taken on people who have been responsible for keeping the doors open and also the people who have not been able to work you know who have been laid off four times and then brought back on like Mm -hmm. rehired laid off rehired laid off and that's um i think that's that's still like a shadow hanging over the restaurant industry yeah and and it's
0: going to take a long time for that to recover, right? I mean, I think it's just changed the way people look at restaurants. But like you said, the way people in the industry respond now to, you know, the long hours, the mental toll that it takes and everything else. Um, So we heard a lot through the pandemic, you know, a lot of advocacy groups came, kind of got their rise during this time, save hospitality, change hospitality. What do you see as some of the areas that really need to be changed. And a lot of discussion has happened around those areas in recent months. Uh, You mentioned mental health, but what needs to be done to make this industry a healthier place for people to work in?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think it comes down to sustainability. So um, sustainability is something that I talk about a lot, especially like pertaining to food and where food is grown or cut. Um, And that process of it getting to us and how we treat it at the restaurant and reducing waste. But for that, for all that to happen, like restaurants have to be sustainable. They have to be able to continue to exist, which is, you know, the the dictionary definition of sustainability. Uh, And I think that the way that restaurants were being run pre pandemic was unsustainable and it was, it couldn't continue. Um, it's a shame that it took a pandemic to like put the brakes on real hard on that. Um, it would have been nice to, to see it play out, but also it's kind of necessary for that to happen and uh, to push people to make a switch and press the reset button, really, and be able to take a step back and say, is this the best way that we can run this business? Is this the best way that we can um, have a supportive environment for the people who work here? Is this the is this how we get the best out of our people? You know, um, and how do we how do we enable people to enjoy what they're doing as well? You know, there's the industry has I think it's better than it was twenty years ago. Um, there was a, a lot more alcohol and drug abuse, there was a lot more sexual harassment, there was a lot more bullying, um, a lot more exploitation of people, and I think we've progressed, I mean we definitely have progressed, but um, I think there's a lot more to be done, and I think for restaurants to be sustainable, we need to take care of the people who want a career in in restaurants. it, it means giving them everything that they would want from another employer in a different industry. I think it's it's quite easy for people who are not in the in, in involved with restaurants at all to uh, to get on board with the notion that if you are employed, then one, your employer should be solely responsible for your compensation. Uh, two, you should be supported in your career so that you. Become the most skilled that you can be and therefore the biggest an asset to the company. And three, have your like personal and mental health supported, physical health supported um, as much as possible by your employer so that you can work, you can continue to work and you can be happy at work. Um, it seems like simple concepts, but it's been largely ignored um, in the restaurant industry for a long time. Hey guys, it's Chef D. I'm here to tell you about Primoro Bacon Flavoured Crumbles. These little bundles of wonder add real bacon flavour anywhere on the menu.
0: Without crazy high bacon prices, get a sample at BaconCrumbles.com and see for yourself. So what kind of um, changes have you had to make specifically in your own restaurant operation to ensure that you're doing that for your staff? Uh, Were you always doing that even prior to the pandemic or did you all of a sudden have to make some changes to say, you know what, it's time we really offer them this X, Y, Z, or whatever the case may be. What did you do uh, tangibly to, to change that?
1: Yeah, so pre-pandemic, we were, like a lot of restaurants, not doing a lot to support our staff um, in terms of the things that I mentioned. We are operating as we could, um, kind of falling on the management team to support our staff um with like little help from from the the company um, mm-hmm. so essentially being like being a mentor but also being like a mental health counselor being like a friend a parent at some points um and like guardian in some instances which really shouldn't fall on the, the managers to do, right? That shouldn't be in your like scope of work. And there should be tools that you have that you can mm-hmm. um, point people to that will help support them. Uh, so during the pandemic, it was September, 2020, um, we, we decided to change to no tipping. Um, we, again, like having the time to take a step back from what we were doing, and being in that like continuous wheel that keeps turning, and you just see no way of changing its direction. Um, we were forced to stop, like everyone else, and um, see things in a different light, see a better way forward, see how we could better support our team, how we could eliminate a lot of the issues that come with tip culture, especially mm-hmm. for the front of house uh, who have to put up with a lot of. In, in some cases, abuse from staff, or even just um, you know, casual racism or discrimination for their age, sexuality, gender, um, and eliminate all of that. But also be able to support our team, be able to offer um, a health spending account to, to promote their wellness and physical health, and also an employee assistance plan to help them with their mental health. Um, have more of a work-life balance be able to um be able to provide like a, an environment where they feel they're valued um, which i think i think we've we've done a good job of and we have good feedback from our staff um and it's obviously a very different environment to what a lot of restaurants offer um, which i think is why we have very good retention and we, we keep a lot of the people that we, that we find.
0: So when you did away with tipping in September, 2020, did you then have to increase the staff wages? Um, How did you treat that?
1: Yeah. So, um, minimum wage at that point for front of house staff was 1220 an hour. um, And we increased our minimum wage to $18 an hour. That is what we paid in the building, and then we we created a compensation structure that was based on position, um, like many other industries. I know. I think the for like healthcare workers and uh, teachers, it's very similar. Where you have pay bands, you like if you're in this position, you're in between this and this, and it's very structured. It's very transparent. Um, I mean, one of the issues globally is inequality of pay between males and females. Um, but also there's, it goes even deeper than that. And the, the lack of transparency and pay in restaurants um, is is pretty prevalent. So having something where people can see immediately what they can make in between this and this, how they can make more um, mm-hmm. by going, like shooting for a, next the level. next position up um, and get into that next tier, what their compensation would be. It's like very, very uh, transparent and easy to see. And then within those, pay tiers. Uh, there's lists, uh, We have lists of skills um, that once they're achieved, then it's an extra 20 cents an hour for that one skill, or it's an extra 50 cents an hour for that one skill, and then that carries through with you every single day that you work after that. That is your wage. So in uh, that, same, that same sentiment of letting people encouraging people to be the best they can so that it benefits the business and benefits the employee because they're more skilled and they're getting paid more um it seems like it, a no-brainer you know like
0: for sure and and how did that go over with with the staff i mean did those change did the no tipping model they were happy with it how did it how did they react
1: yeah we that was september 2020 and then we actually shut down again in uh, i think it was the start of november October
0: or something yeah yeah
1: end of october so we didn't really have a, a lot of uh opportunity to like let it bed in um and that was i think the second shutdown maybe the second lockdown uh and what we found with a lot of our front of house team like a lot of front of house workers in the industry have other careers that are kind of simmering under the surface and serving as usually a side job um, for those that are not career career focused, like hospitality career focused. So we saw a lot of our front of house team after that next lockdown, uh, like a lot of people in the industry chose to put all of their effort into that what was a side gig and make it a full-time gig. So mm. um, a lot of... A lot of people went into hospitality, like restaurant adjacent jobs, working as uh, reps for beer or for liquor brands. Uh, right, so, so you lost it, some people. Yeah, I mean, we we lost. Uh, like, there's only so many times you can be laid off, and um, of course, of course, continue um, to to do it.
0: And w- with that, similarly to that no tipping model, I mean, one of the things that. Uh, The industry is notorious for is long hours. You know, people complain about 14-hour days or even more than that um, most days. Did you adjust the hours for your employees? Did you have to change how those hours are structured? What happened on that front?
1: Yeah, we we never did that anyway. So um, yeah, so you generally find that with uh, people who pay day rates so mm-hmm. I th- there's not many. I don't think there's many restaurants that do that anymore. Um, but paying day rates where you you would get like two hundred dollars a day, but you'll right. work as much as you you can be uh, pushed to work. So we never we never did that, and we we pay people hourly um, and have overtime pay. So we really encourage people not to work more than forty four hours a week. That's great, right. um, so we've never really had that um, with our salaried employees, we're a lot more conscious of the hours that we're working um, again that's that's a, a, a usual suspect in the restaurant industry as soon as you're on salary, it means that you you are property of the hours. restaurant and yeah we'll spend every waking moment in the restaurant um, For sure, which uh, I think starts with. It starts with management and taking the lead, and showing that it's okay to work a nine-hour day. Um, I mean, there, there still are times when we will do twelve-hour days, like, but it's on a very few occasions, um, and it's when it's necessary. But then we'll also give, you know, do four-day weeks to make up for that, or um, just doing what we can to to give work-life balance.
0: Sure. And, and you mentioned earlier, you know, employment, uh, employee assistant programs. Um, do you have those as part of your benefits package as well? What have you, what are you looking at for that in that area?
1: Yeah, we have a, an employee assistance plan that gives everybody access to a, a therapist, a mental health counselor, um, couples therapy, legal advice, financial advice, nutritional That's advice, advice um, and... Again, it comes from leader, leadership and, like, it comes from um, management talking about it, making use of it, and advocating for its use. Um, I think I mentioned before just the the mental toll that the last two and a half years has, has had on everybody that works in restaurants, having that as a... Um, having that as a tool that's available to people has been so invaluable and to myself included um it's like therapy is expensive and for sure uh having like expecting people to be able to afford that and to spend money on that on top of the expenses that keep increasing increasing is just not viable and then um even with a supportive environment it doesn't mean that people are not going to experience Um, mental health issues or a a mental health crisis.
0: And you mentioned earlier that, you know, there's maybe a little bit less stigma around mental health these days. I think the last two years have really brought it to the fore, but there still is stigma. How do you encourage staff to take advantage of those areas when a lot of people, you know, are maybe a little bit more reluctant to admit that they have a mental health issue? I, I think all of us do that to some degree
1: yeah i think again it's just as as leaders in like a small restaurant people look up to us and people follow by example right so um that's the way that like chain of um toxicity in restaurants has allowed been allowed to continue because you learn from the person who trained you you learn from your mentor so um being an advocate for using those like mental health resources and being an advocate for taking time off and um, you know not working yourself to the bone will then breed the next generation of cooks and who will become leaders in the industry, um, who are also advocates for that because they've they've that's the way that they've been taught, that's what they've seen when they were growing up and, and coming through the ranks. Um, so it's really just like changing that narrative of what people, what has been ingrained into, uh, the next generation.
0: So it's basically seeing those examples from the people at the top and, and feeling comfortable to follow that. Yeah. Yeah, That makes sense. And it's great that you're able to do that. Um, you mentioned earlier when you removed the tipping uh, model that also alleviated some of the racism that really comes out, you know, with that tipping model. Um, We've heard a lot in the last two years about racism being systemic in this hospitality industry. Um, What do you feel that, from your perspective, you know, do you think systemic racism exists in this industry? And, And what are you doing as a leader to try to change that in your own operation?
1: Yeah, I don't think there is a question of does systemic racism exist? It's very obvious that it exists. You have um uh, myself included in this catchment um almost all of the chefs head chefs executive chefs uh, leaders of kitchens in toronto are white male and often like of anglo heritage
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there's no there's no reason why uh, white males are better at cooking or better at leading or like in any 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 of the attributes that are needed to, uh, to be a chef or to run a kitchen, um, there's no reason why they should be better. So, without thinking too hard, you can see immediately that systemic racism exists and it's very, very alive and well in our society. Um, in terms of, in terms of like front of house staff experiencing racism, I don't think I'm, I'm really eligible to be a spokesperson on that or for that so um i i use a lot of research or i will do a lot of research and have conversations with with racialized folks about the experiences that they've had um Mm -hmm. or especially women um in the front of house who take a a heavy brunt of a lot of the the badness that happens in, in those guest interactions Um, but we know that there's a a, there are different people will tip differently based on um, the gender, race, sexuality of a server and there's been multiple studies done that show that that's the case Um, and it's a lot of it's not unconscious you know or like not conscious it's so ingrained in us and that's the that's the systemic part of it is that it's not a conscious decision. You're just making a predetermined choice based on your upbringing on society and how you've been ingrained to feel that way about certain people Um, and taking that option away from guests that they can't decide how much people are paid um, leaves the employer with the the sole responsibility of hiring, compensating um, and ensuring that we have people who are happy, healthy, and um, learning. Yeah.
0: Industry tackle the racism issue when you're saying that you know, most of the restaurants are helmed by white males. Uh, we know that exists, we see it. How do we change it? And, and what small steps can be taken by every restaurant out there to ensure that we all work on this together?
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, a couple of steps, really. It's having safe and supportive environments for people um, that aren't necessarily white male or having supportive environments for people who aren't white male, Uh, supportive environments for women, supportive environments for um, racialized and LGBTQ folks to... Ensure that they they can thrive, that they don't have these like um, barriers or handicaps that will stop them from progressing because of the environment that they're in, mm-hmm. um, and also recognizing that equality is not enough, and that you have to look to equity, um, recognizing that that people all, not all people have the same starts in life, and people don't have like the same opportunities gifted to them. Um, So in terms of hiring, looking like positively, essentially looking for, uh, actively looking for females to work in the kitchen, you know, looking, sorting those resumes um, to try and promote uh, females and try to really actively creating a diverse team and creating a safe space for them to thrive. I think is is what's necessary so that those, those people will then become leaders and also actively um, looking for them to become leaders.
0: Do you think we need quotas in the industry so that people are forced to do that as opposed to just leaving it to them
1: to, think, to do it at their yeah, will? I think quotas could be dangerous um, for a number of reasons. <laughs> Uh, I think if you don't have a supportive environment, then hiring, uh, for instance, hiring women into a kitchen that is a toxic workplace and embodies a lot of the negative negativity that comes with um, kitchen culture, I think is a is a bad idea. Um, I think, I think imposing quotas is is, is terrible um
0: sorry it's an age-old debate and i think there are times where people just dangle that as a solution but i'm Mm. just want to know what your thought is yeah i think
1: it would it would immediately rectify the uh statistical issues (laughs) that wouldn't actually do anything in terms of like getting to a solution
0: right so so Chris, one of the things that obviously uh, one of the most important discussions in the last two years that we've had around the pandemic is the staff shortages. You mentioned earlier that a lot of people left the industry to go to other, you know, hospitality adjacent companies because it was easier because there was no roller coaster of openings and closings. Um, this industry is facing a huge, huge shortage right now, and it's a terrible problem for the industry. How are you dealing with that? I mean, I know you've tried to implement all these great new um, realities like the no tipping and, and the, you know, the assistance programs and trying to pay people fairly. Um, but this in, but issue is not gonna go away overnight. So what needs to be done to really change the way people view this industry so that we won't be facing this this problem in an ongoing way for the next 10 years?
1: yeah i think there will be a lag of at least a few years um for people to forget the pandemic uh, or like forget the ways that it affected the industry so um a lot of a lot of young people who would have been looking for a job in in hospitality and maybe now considering something else because of the instability i think the the pandemic has shown that fragility in uh the hospitality and restaurant industry and i think we'll we'll continue to see less fewer and fewer uh young people deciding to take uh take a career path in in hospitality which poses an issue um huge issue a huge issue so i think it's even more important to offer an environment that is supportive um it's it's less it has been less tolerated um, by young professionals entering the industry. Uh, a lot of the toxicity and negativity um, in the industry, people are just not not willing to put up with that anymore. So having a safe haven, which is kind of what we're, we're trying to create here uh, for people to thrive and grow, I think is, is attractive. Um, to to young cooks and uh, especially for the kitchen have an environment where nobody shouts nobody's like mean to each other you know it's we we're, we're here for the team and we help each other out and we all learn together and we um, it's very much a democracy um, if someone sees a better way of doing things and we'll talk about it and we'll assess mm-hmm. it and um, most of the time it, it happens. Um, we also, we, I got rid of the word chef in the kitchen. So, um, no one addresses me as chef. It's a profession, not a, not a name. I have a name, you know, um, and that kind of, just that small thing, just, I think goes a long way to eliminating the autocracy, uh, autocracy um, and kind of like dictatorship of kitchens where the chef's word is automatically correct um and also really, yes, the,
0: chef mentality is what yeah
1: mm-hmm. and that kind of automatic respect that's get often given to chefs like you could be day one at a new job and you immediately call the kitchen leader chef and that that respect is like immediately given without actually meaning for it to be given so
0: interesting
1: um, yeah there's a lot of different ways uh, like some some people have a hard time getting used to it um because they say it's like a, a sign of respect but there's so many other ways that you can show respect you know you can turn up to work on time you can mm-hmm. come with like a clean uniform you can like make sure that your mise en place is always really clean you can like yeah. clean your section you, like there's so many different ways of Giving respect, other than automatically giving it in every every time you address somebody.
0: That's really cool. So having these issues to deal with the labor shortages and the, all the inherent problems that have been caused by the pandemic in the last two years, are you worried about this industry? I mean, you're you are a, a leader in the kitchen, and you're looking for people to work with you and the number of people ready and willing to do so are dwindling, does that, does that scare you? Does that worry you for the future of this industry?
1: I think we'll, we'll start to see restaurants change. Um, and I think there'll be a lot less human interaction, um, just the way that a lot of restaurants um, will will decide to go. Um, and that can be through like automated service through like.
0: Robotics. Order it,
1: order it. robotics. Yeah. Order it, a, a touch screen and then sit down. Your meal is brought to you by a, a robot on wheels. Um, but I think we'll still, as humans, we still need, like, we still need social interaction and we still long for like the analog, but like we're, we're an industry that's still very analog, right? In, even though we have all of these systems and apps, like um, the reservation system, the point of sale system, but we're still very analog and very like human, human touch orientated. So, um, I don't think there's any way that you can replicate. Like, robots and technology can like replicate things exactly, um, mm-hmm. but then there's no authenticity. So. If you like come technology can easily replicate art but there's a reason why people go to museums to see the of original uh, and i think that's very true with restaurants
0: interesting so so obviously over the last 2 years the crisis that we've dealt with has really spurred a lot of innovation in restaurants and has has forced operators to look at things in a whole different way and a different light um, what do you see as more innovation that restaurant dining, you know, can take advantage of over the next little while? Where do you see where do you see innovation coming into play in the next few years?
1: Innovation. Um, I think what we've seen with uh, the the pandemic when it hit, I think a lot of people realized that they only had one stream of revenue, um, and that was dine in service just like we did so as soon as we were no longer allowed to have people in the building uh, we lost 100% of our revenue so um, for, for restaurants to have an extra something else that keeps them afloat and something they can they can lean to um, if things go south or even just another arm of the business that can keep people employed um, is, is something that people are cognizant of now um, we we kept the market that we started during the pandemic and we moved it to a physical location in stacked market yes. um one to keep our kitchen team busy and to mean that we can have more people in the kitchen and we can mm-hmm. um, continue to serve our guests in other places apart from inside the restaurant um but also just have like a, a diverse revenue portfolio you know we can uh, yeah, we, we were more pandemic proof or were more, uh, active guard proof.
0: Did you have to also pivot to takeout in addition to the market concept that you introduced?
1: Yeah, we did. Uh, we went on any delivery apps be- before, um, but then we were on them. It seems like indentured servitude to be on a delivery app where you're paying uh,
0: twenty, 20 somewhere
1: 30. anywhere between twenty to thirty percent of that sale goes out the window, um, and I know that there are costs that are associated, um, but I think those should be flat. I think the the cost that it, it the cost that is incurred to deliver a ten dollar portion of fries versus a two hundred dollar order for six people is exactly yeah. the same and i think Not. a lot of the the costs fall on the restaurant to to, to prepare that um, and then the delivery apps are just kind of like scooping up as much as they can
0: but you don't have your own delivery system at this stage
1: we don't we uh we ha- we have a deli- we have a courier partner that we use for the market so we can do gta wide delivery right. um, but we actually have removed the apps um, now from the restaurant for the delivery
0: you have yeah wow.
1: yeah so a lot of our food doesn't travel well anyway like it's it's intended to be eaten here right. um and we're competing that there's a lot of concepts and a lot of stories behind our food that you just can't convey through Understandable. um so then that justification of value and that v- value proposition becomes skewed uh, when you start using Using, a, using an app as an interface instead of a server.
0: For sure. No, that makes total sense. So Chris, as a way to to wrap up our our interview, because I know we're running out of time, um, in, in speaking to people over the last few years, one of the questions I always like to ask is, what are the some of the biggest lessons that you've learned through the pandemic as it relates to your hospitality business, but also perhaps in your own personal life? I think we've all uh, learned a lot through the last two years. Forcibly been learn- forced to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say some of those biggest lessons are for you?
1: Yeah, I think the um, the, the revenue streams and realizing how fragile the restaurant industry is. Um, I think that was a, a big lesson to learn. I think I think anyone could have really seen it coming um, in 2019 or before. That that could happen, so there was never and uh, never any urge or it wasn't necessary to try and do anything else to um, support the business. That's really, I think, the number one takeaway is being having other things, other offerings, and like other reasons why people would visit you um, other than just dining service, whether that's delivery or a market, as we've done. Um, or catering, as some of the restaurants have, have developed mm-hmm. as well. Uh, I think for myself, um, having mental health support has been so necessary. Uh, the the constant pressure of keeping a restaurant alive, but also um, taking care of all the people who work in the restaurant, having to lay them off was so incredibly tough, and to do that four times, I think, four or five times, um, it never got easier. And then ensuring that everyone's okay while they're laid off and trying to bring them back and trying to balance, um, trying to juggle all of the the balls that are just waiting to drop down on your head. Having support uh, was incredibly, incredibly beneficial. Um, I don't know how I would have done it otherwise and, you know, advocating for that for for other people in the industry and recognizing that it is a very demanding place to work, it's a very demanding environment to work, we're expected to produce um, miracles in 20 minutes and um, very time sensitive and very demanding.
0: You have a lot on your plate as as a chef, and uh, definitely as an operator these days. It's it's a huge mammoth task and, and task, and I know that um, from everything you've said today, you've done so much to try to create that safe haven for your employees and your team. So I commend you on that, and I, I know it's uh, it doesn't stop. It's not like you do it once and then it stops. It's an evolution, and it's a work in progress. So. Um, So congratulations on all you've done and and staying alive through this period. And I wish you the best moving forward. Um, Really appreciated you taking the time today to be with us. And um, thank you for, for just spending that time with
1: us. Thank you, Rosanna. It's been a pleasure. Well,
0: good luck and talk soon. Thank you. Bye. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.